Today's episode is sponsored by Adaptive Books. Adaptive Books is now presenting the recently published new YA novel, The Silence of Six, from Norton Award-winning author E.C. Myers. Goodreads, which is a great website, selected The Silence of Six as one of the five best YA novels this month and is an excellent choice for adult readers who like a good page-turner. What is The Silence of Six is a thrilling novel that touches on current issues of hacktivism, government, and corporate invasion of personal privacy. The Silence of Six, available wherever books are sold, including Amazon, iBooks, BN.com, IndieBound, or your local bookseller, which is my preference, or go to www.adaptivestudios.com backslash podcast and sign up for the chance to win a free hardcover copy. Reading Aloud is brought to you by Bulu Box. Bulu Box, B-U-L-U-B-O-X.com, is this amazing service that sends you healthy snacks for you to try. You try the snacks, you let them know what ones you want, and they send it back to you. So go to BuluBox.com and click on the microphone in the top left-hand corner and enter promo code NATE to get a three-month Bulu Box subscription for just 10 bucks. What a deal. Welcome to episode four of Reading Aloud. Thanks for downloading this podcast. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. And uh, this is an interesting episode because it's all nonfiction. This is the first nonfiction episode. Everything that's being read to you um, is not, you know, invented in someone's imagination. It was uh, researched and reported on. The first piece, um, which is one of my favorite pieces, it's it's a piece that I had read at my first show when I just rented a theater in Burbank and had some friends read some shit. Um, it was read by uh, my pal Nelson Franklin, who is back to read it for you today. Uh, it's this amazing piece from the New York Times Magazine in 2003. Chuck Klosterman, who's an amazing journalist and writer. He has a lot of really good nonfiction stuff. He also has some novels, but his stuff for um, Grantland and ESPN.com and Esquire as well um, is just absolutely hilarious. He also has really good stuff for The Ethicist, um, which is through the New York Times as well. Um, Fargo Rock City, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, all that stuff is is his work, and he's he's awesome. I want to have him on the podcast someday. but in the meantime, he wrote this really great article for the New York Times Magazine about, well, actually, I don't want to give it away. Um, that'll ruin it. So I'm just going to have my pal Nelson um, read it now. Nelson is one of those actors that just can make anything funny. He has just that sort of innate gift that very few performers have. He's such a smart guy, super funny, and a great dude. And he was, he was very generous to come into the studio and read this piece for you guys. Um, It's called The Pretenders, and it's from 2003, and it's a little dated, so there's one or two references in the reading um, that are out of date, but uh, it doesn't make any difference. This piece is fucking awesome, and Nelson just kills it. So here is Nelson Franklin. Randy Trask's hair is naturally blonde. He likes it that color, and it looks just fine. It's what his hair is supposed to look like, but in his line of work, blonde hair is a problem. And he knows it. I'm going to dye my hair red, he assures me. That is definitely in the works. It's just the last time I tried it, it turned sort of pink. And then for some reason, people get scared of you when you have red hair. I don't know why that is, but it's true. They just don't warm up to you the way that they do if you're blonde. Trask is telling me this at 10 minutes to midnight. We're sitting in his 1997 extended cab Ford Ranger pickup, which we will soon be driving from Cincinnati to Harrisonburg, Virginia, for his gig tomorrow night. Trask is the lead singer in a band called Paradise City, and like any frontman, he cares about his image. But Trask has a whole set of concerns, like the specific tint of his hair, that most singers don't need to worry about. He doesn't just want to look good. He wants to look exactly like W. Axel Rose, the lead singer of Guns N' Roses, the late 80s pop metal band that Paradise City imitates, as precisely as possible, in every show it plays. It's roughly a 10-hour drive to Harrisonburg, so leaving in the middle of the night should get us to town just in time to check into the Hampton Inn and take an afternoon nap. There's some concern about this trip because the last time the band stayed in Harrisonburg, they were banned for life from the Econo Lodge. 
They need to make sure things go smoothly at the Hampton Inn this weekend. There just aren't that many hotels in Harrisonburg to choose from. Our pickup is idling outside the home of Paul Dishner, Trask's bandmate, who is inside, still packing for our voyage. Our conversation moves on from Trask's hair to issues of larger questions. Yeah, I had initially had a problem with the idea of doing a Guns N' Roses tribute because I didn't want anyone to think that I was discrediting Axel, Trask says. That was my main concern. You know, if Axel was somehow against this, I would just straight up quit. I would never do this if he disapproved. But I really think we could do his songs justice. You know, people constantly tell me, you sound better than Axel, but I always say, whoa, now slow down, because I like the way I sing Axel songs, but I love the way Axel sings them. I mean, that's the main thing I'm concerned with about this article. I do not want to say anything negative about Guns N' Roses. That's all I ask. I'm the first reporter who's ever done a story on Paradise City. This is less a commentary on Paradise City, named after one of Guns N' Roses' biggest hits, and more a commentary on the phenomenon of tribute bands arguably the most universally maligned sector of rock and roll. These are bands mired in obscurity and engaged in a bizarre zero-sum game. If a tribute band were to succeed completely, its members would essentially cease to exist. Their goal is not to be somebody. Their goal is to be somebody else. Though the Beatles and Elvis Presley were the first artists to spawn impersonators, the modern tribute template was set by groups like Strutter, Hotter Than Hell, and Cold Gin, all of which found success in the early 90s by looking, acting, and singing like the 1978 version of Kiss. It turned out that people would sooner pay $10 to see four guys pretending to be Kiss than $5 to see four guys playing original songs nobody had ever heard before. There are now hundreds, probably thousands of rock bands who make a living by method acting. There's the Atomic Punks, Van Halen tribute that celebrates the David Lee Roth era. Planet Earth are an L.A.-based Duran Duran clone. Bjorn Again claims to be Australia's first ABBA tribute. ACDC is an all-female ACDC cover group from San Francisco. There are tributes to groups that weren't even popular to begin with. Badfinger, Thin Lizzy. And there are tributes to bands who are not altogether difficult to see for real. Dave Matthews Band, Creed. And although rock critics deride Stone Temple Pilots and Oasis for ripping off other artists, people pay good money to watch tribute bands rip off Stone Temple Pilots and Oasis. Being conscientiously derivative is not simple. Trask and Dishner can talk for hours about the complexity of feeding their appetite for replication. There are countless qualifications that must be considered when auditioning potential members in a tribute. This was especially obvious when Paradise City had to find a new person to play Slash, GNR's unforgettable lead guitarist. It's not enough to find a guy who plays guitar well. Your Slash needs to play guitar like Slash. He needs to play a Les Paul. He needs to tune it like Slash. He needs to have long black hair that hangs in his face. Preferably, he should have a dark complexion, an emaciated physique, and a willingness to play shirtless. And if possible, he should drink Jack Daniels. The Slash in Paradise City fulfills about half of these requirements. Bobby's on thin ice right now. He knows he's on thin ice says Trask, referring to lead guitarist Bobby Young. I mean, he's an okay guy, and he's a good guitar player, but we have ads out right now for a new Slash, and he knows that. I want someone who is transfixed with being Slash. You know, we want someone who is as sick about Slash as I am about Axel. What is odd about Young's shortcomings as Slash is that in a traditional band, his job would likely be the most secure. He's clearly the most skilled musician in Paradise City with a degree from Cincinnati's Conservatory of Music. Yeah, I was uh, classically trained, so I'm used to everything being built around minor chords, he tells me. But Slash plays almost everything in a major chord, and his soloing is very different than mine. You know, it's all in chromatic keys. I really thought I could learn all these Guns N' Roses songs in two days, but it took me almost two weeks. Unfortunately, Young can't learn how to look like a mulatto former heroin addict, and he holds the only position in America for which that is a job requirement. He only vaguely resembles Slash, and his bandmates tell him he looks like an Oompa Loompa from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There's a similar problem with Paradise City's bassist, an affable, laid-back blonde named Spike. Spike is built a little too much like a farmer. His shoulders are broad, and he actually looks more like a Larry Bird than a Duff McKagan, the bassist in Guns N' Roses. Spike is also partly deaf from playing heavy metal for so many years. He can't hear certain frequencies, including high-end feedback, but amazingly, this doesn't seem to pose a problem. Visually, the rest of Paradise City succeeds to varying degrees. Rob, the monster Pullman, the drummer, could pass perfectly for Steven Adler if Pullman hadn't just shaved his head and dyed the remaining bristles orange. Dishner is upset about Pullman's new haircut. 
A few days earlier, he had explained to me proudly that what sets us apart from the 22 other Guns N' Roses tribute bands in America is that we don't wear wigs. Trask is eight inches too tall to be Axl Rose, but he has the voice, and most importantly, the desire. He wills himself into Axolosity. Dishner is the only Paradise City member who naturally looks like his assigned doppelganger, Izzy Stradlin, Guns N' Roses' original rhythm guitarist. He's also the guy who makes the trains run on time. He handles the cash, coordinates the schedules, and keeps his bandmates from killing one another. Before Paradise City, Dishner played in an Ingve Malmsteen-influenced heavy metal band called Premonition, a group whose entire existence was based on the premise that Juan Carlos, the King of Spain, is in fact the Antichrist. To this day, Dishner adheres to this theory and insists that it can be proved through biblical prophecy. He lives with his wife, Christy, an aspiring vampire novelist, in a small suburb of Cincinnati, and he peppers his conversation with a high-pitched two-note laugh that sounds like, Wee-hee! Over the next 36 hours, he will make that sound approximately 400 times. <laughs> By the time we pull out of Dishner's driveway at 12.30 a.m., it has already been an incredibly long day for Trask. He woke at 2 a.m. at his home in Ravenna, Ohio, and immediately drove four hours to the outskirts of Cincinnati, where he spent his day cutting down a troublesome tree in Dishner's yard. After a brief nap, the band hooked up for a few hours of rehearsal before supper. Now Trask is about to drive the entire way to Virginia nonstop. He almost never sleeps. Trask once drove 22 straight hours to Hayes, Kansas, and played a show immediately on arrival. If the real Axl Rose had Trask's focus... Guns N' Roses would have released two albums a year. There was a time when Paradise City had a tour bus, but they lost it last summer. This is not a euphemism. They literally can't find it. It broke down on a trip to Kansas City, and they had to leave it in a Missouri garage to make it to the club on time. Somehow they lost the business card of the garage, and they have never been able to find their way back. Dishner tells me this story three times before I realize he's completely serious. We, we drove back through Missouri a bunch of times. We put up a picture on our website. We even called the highway patrol, Dishner says. But we lost the bus. I guess there's some law that states you only have 30 days to find your bus. <laughs> the band is now traveling in two vehicles. Randy, Axel, will use his truck to pull the Hallmark trailer that holds their gear. He'll drive, I'll ride shotgun, and Paul, Izzy, will curl up in the extended cab. A friend of the band, some dude named Teddy, will follow in his Ford Mustang, which will also carry Bobby, Slash, and Rob, Steven. The pickup box is covered with a topper, so Spike, Duff, will lie back there with Punky. Trask and Dishner do not know who Punky is. At departure time, only 40% of the band is not under the influence of some kind of chemical. 20 minutes into the trip, that percentage will fall to zero. Even before we get on the road, this Punky character looks drunk enough to die... Amazingly, he's just getting started. They're all just getting started. It remains to be seen if these guys sound like Guns N' Roses, but clearly they have the self-destructive thing mastered. Our vehicles barrel into the darkness of Kentucky. Spike and Punky are freezing in the box of the pickup, and they try to stay warm by drinking Bud Light. Inside the toasty cab, faux Axel, faux Izzy, and I discuss the question most people have about tribute bands, which is, why on earth do you do this? It seems antithetical to the whole concept of art. The notion of creativity has been completely removed from the equation. Wouldn't the members of Paradise City be happier if they could write their own songs, dress however they want, and quite simply be themselves? Not really. Obviously, being an original band is the ultimate dream, but it mostly sucks, Dishner says. You don't get to tour. You don't get no money. You have to beg your own friends to come to the shows. But being a mock star is awesome. Paradise City will earn $1,100 for the Harrisonburg show. After their manager takes his 15% and they pay for gas and promotions, they'll be left with $655, which, split between the five people, ends up being $131 each. Obviously, this is almost nothing, but the operative word is almost. If the same five guys in Paradise City performed their own material, they'd have to pay the club owners for the chance to play. Relatively speaking, $1,100 is good money. The thing about being in a tribute band is that your fans already exist, Trask says. You show up at the bar, there's immediately a few hundred people who love Guns N' Roses and therefore love you. We don't think of ourselves as Guns N' Roses, but our fans are Guns N' Roses fans. They're not really fans of Paradise City. We're, we're not deluding ourselves. This is true. No one in Paradise City seems confused about the social significance of the group. 
but they're obsessed with convincing themselves that it's still worth it. They love talking about how life on the road is a hard yet satisfying experience. They make grand proclamations that sound like outtakes from VH1's Behind the Music. It's all about the fans. It's all about the music. It's all about the awe-inspiring majesty of rock. It's all about something, and then it's all about something else entirely. But they're never lying. When you're in a tribute band, all these cliches are true. Paradise City cares more about Guns N' Roses than the actual members of Guns N' Roses care about the song Paradise City. In fact, the guys in Paradise City care about all music with more enthusiasm than any group of musicians I've ever encountered. The truck stereo never plays an artist they dislike. They have positive things to say about Aerosmith, Nickelback, Celine Dion, Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, and Alabama. When Jules' You Were Meant For Me comes on the radio, Dishner mentions that the song always makes him wish it was raining. Ten minutes later, he tells me that Rush is just about the greatest three-piece band ever, and then gives a similar compliment to the Rush tribute band, 2112. We hit the Virginia border around dawn. Trask begins scanning the radio stations in hope of hearing the commercial. Now, this is a radio spot promoting Paradise City's concert at the Main Street Bar and Grill in Harrisonburg. The band gets excited about hearing the commercial in the same way normal bands get excited about hearing their first single on the radio. And when we finally hear it, it refers to Paradise City's triumphant return to Virginia. High fives are exchanged all around. For the next hour, Trask and I discuss the real Guns N' Roses, a topic we are both obsessed with, albeit in very different ways. Just like mine, Trask's first musical love was Motley Crue. Before Paradise City, he fronted a Motley tribute called Bastard. But he slowly grew obsessed with the more combustible GNR. Guns N' Roses made its debut in 1987 as LA's most dangerous band. Blowing the doors off pop metal with Appetite for Destruction, arguably the strongest debut album ever. They followed with an EP titled GNR Lies, which is best remembered for the ballad Patience and the controversial song One in a Million, a track that managed to be racist, homophobic, and xenophobic all in just over six minutes. In 1991, Guns released two massive albums on the same day, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, cementing their place as the biggest band in the world. Yet by 1997, it had all collapsed. One by one, every member, except the mercurial Axl Rose, either quit or was fired. Rose became a virtual recluse, endlessly working on an alleged masterpiece titled Chinese Democracy that may never be released. But history is not an issue for Paradise City. For them, the past is no different than the present and the future will be identical. Every day, Axl Rose grows a little bit older, but Paradise City never ages beyond the summer of 91. There are no fashion don'ts inside the Main Street Bar and Grill in downtown Harrisonburg. You want to wear a headband? Fine. You want to wear a FUBU sweatshirt and a baseball hat featuring the Confederate flag? No problem. This is the kind of place where you'll see a college girl trying to buy a $2.25 glass of natural light on tap with her credit card and have her card denied. The Main Street is not trendy, but it's still cool, or at least gritty, and Paradise City has sold it out. Almost 500 people, mostly kids from nearby James Madison University, have paid $12 each to get inside, which is as big an audience as the Main Street will draw for next week's show by Dawkin, an 80s metal act trying to make a comeback. One can only wonder how the real guys in Dawkin feel about being as popular as five fake guys in Guns N' Roses. The opening act is a local collegiate jam band called Alpine Recess. They look as if they'd rather be opening for a fish tribute band, but the crowd is polite. Meanwhile, Paradise City is dressing downstairs in the basement, drinking free beer in the storeroom and leaning against a water heater. They've decided to open with the song Night Train, even though it includes an extended five-minute guitar solo that young worries might anesthetize the audience. Unlike the real GNR, Paradise City hits the stage on time. Trask moves his hips in Axel's signature snake-like way, and the crowd sings along with everything. Paradise City may not always look like Guns N' Roses, but they certainly sound like them. When I go to the bathroom and hear the music through the door, it's impossible not to think that this is how it would have sounded to urinate on the Sunset Strip in 1986. This next song is dedicated to everyone who ever told you how to live, Trask tells us as he prowls the 25-foot stage. This is for everybody who told you not to smoke weed or not to drink beer every day. This soliloquy leads into the bubbling bass intro of It's So Easy, the angriest three minutes on Appetite for Destruction. Girls begin crawling on stage to dance on top of amplifiers, and the band couldn't be happier. Ultimately, this is why they do this. On stage, they're paying tribute to the music of Guns N' Roses, but deep down, 
They're paying tribute to the Guns N' Roses lifestyle. They're totally willing to become other people, just so long as those other people party all the time, live like gypsies, then have pretty girls dancing on amplifiers. This is why guys create rock bands. Paradise City just created somebody else's. After the show, a few girls, most of whom seem very young, accompany the band back to the Hampton, and the frivolity lasts until dawn. The gig is an undeniable success. There is a casualty, however. The next morning, something is clearly amiss with Punky. It turns out he fell down a flight of stairs before the concert, and he spent the entire Paradise City set lying on the concrete floor of their basement dressing room. He still managed to party with the band for most of the night, but in the morning, when the clarity of sobriety finally emerged, little Punky realized his wrist was broken, and he had to be rushed to the hospital by ambulance. Oddly, or perhaps predictably, the band simply drove back to Ohio. We left Punky with no car and no ride, broken and battered, in a town where he knew absolutely no one. Axel would have completely approved. That was the great Nelson Franklin reading Chuck Klosterman's The Pretenders. I just, the image of that poor dude with his broken wrist somewhere in Virginia, like trying to figure out how to get home, that really makes me laugh. And I, and the description of, of, uh, of the band losing the bus, literally, just fucking makes me laugh every time. Uh, it's so good. And, um, so thank you to Nelson Franklin for coming in and doing that. He was so great, and, and uh, I thought that was great. So um, let's get on to more stuff. But before we get to my interview, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is also brought to you by Audible. Audible.com is the place for audiobooks. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from, and every category is covered. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash nate for a free 30-day trial and a free book. It's amazing. Free book. But if you're still not convinced, here's a couple of reasons why Audible works. It's, uh, it's unlike a, like a rental service. You actually own the book that you get. So it's yours once you download it. And there are apps for iPhones, uh, Android, Windows Phone. I'm not sure who uses Windows Phones, but if you have one, good on you. Get the app and get a free book. And there's really easy chapter navigation and, uh, and bookmarks, so you can move through the book very easily. Um, and let's not forget about the selection. Uh, Lena Dunham's new book, um, Not That Kind of Girl, is narrated by Lena Dunham, which is great. So you can download that and while you're driving around or going for walks, listen to uh, Not That Kind of Girl. Um, and you need to go to audiblepodcast.com backslash Nate, and you get a free trial and a free book. And, and if you don't like what you chose, th- there's no problem. Audible has this great listen guarantee. So you can exchange any book you're not happy with, with another title, anytime, no questions asked. You can read the entire book, get to the last page and go, this is boring, I want a new book. And Audible will say, okay. So go to audiblepodcast.com backslash Nate and do it. My guest this week is Eli Addy. Eli is a writer producer here in Hollywood, California. He's worked on shows like The West Wing, uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, where I met Eli. Uh, most recently, he spent a, several years working on House as a writer and producer. And before that, before he came to Los Angeles and wrote for television, he was a, I guess you could say a political operative. Is that the right term? Yeah, there's a lot of terms for it. But, right. but Can know, I use that one? Hack. Um, come on now. Slave. Easy. Establishment sellout. No, uh, operative is a good is a good catch all term. Eli was an operative slash sellout uh, for the Democrats. He was a special assistant to President Clinton, uh, and he was Vice President Gore's chief speechwriter. That's right. Uh, throughout the campaign in two thousand. Yeah, actually, in for almost all of the second Clinton term in the White House, and then I only re- so he, like on his kind of White House government staff, and then I. He got a campaign organization going kind of toward the end, and I stayed uh, working for the government till the last second that the lawyers could justify me still working there right. when I was doing no government work and all political work. And then they kicked me out, and I was on the campaign staff for the last six months. Six months. Up to the end of the recount. 
I can't wait to ask you. Grizzly time. Yeah, I cannot wait. Uh, We're going to dig into that in a bit. We're also going to talk to Eli about uh, books, because this is a podcast about the written word and books and writing, and we're going to talk about some books that he likes, books that he doesn't like. Um, I've heard good things about books. Books are great. They come highly recommended. Letters, words, sentences, paragraphs. Um, And uh, let's just start right in. How many men and women wrote the concession speech? Well... That's a good question. The The concession speech was, I want to say, I mean, it was largely written by me and, and Gore. Um, but, and there's a little bit of a backstory to it. Uh, but he got, he asked some people for thoughts hmm. um, by fax. And I couldn't tell you all the people he asked. I think one of them was Dick Goodwin, who'd been like a sort of a well-known speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy. Um, so, and I had, um, a concession speech that was written from election night and not used. Wow. In fact, I had, this is an interesting story, um, on the actual election night, well, a few days before the actual election night, um, I had written a concession speech on my own because it's just a thing you do. I've been on, I've been a speechwriter for some other politicians and I'd been on campaigns before and it's just, you usually don't discuss it with the candidate or anybody. It's more of a superstition. You kind of have to have one. Somebody told me years before that, a political consultant, that you have to write the concession speech and just keep it yourself because if you don't write it, you need it. Yeah, yeah That yeah. was a superstition. Then again, right. I always wrote them and I always needed them anyway. So maybe <laughs> I had it wrong. It's like there's, what's that old saying? Show me a good loser. You know, I'll show you a loser. Exactly. That was me. But, but um, so I had a concession speech ready and then somebody, one of the sort of high uh, honchos of the campaign pulled me aside one day you know, a few days before the election or a week before the election and said, um, there's some weird exit polling. I think they're, I think they've done some electoral college exit poll. Yeah. Or not, I'm sorry, not exit poll, but it was just a, an estimate polling to, to sort of determine what the electoral college might be that had shown a tie. And so Holy somebody shit. had said, uh, so meaning it could come down to like absentee ballots in yeah, like yeah. a couple states or one state. And so somebody said, you know what, write a statement that Gore could give to just go up on stage and say, hey, it's everybody, we fought a great fight. We don't know yet. Well, not an actual tie, but sort <laughs> sure, of so sure. close that, you know, and everybody go home and get some sleep and we ran a great campaign. And just don't tell anybody, just keep it in your right. pocket and do that. So I did that. Then someone else said to me, um, in fact, we had a meeting about it at the Gore campaign in Nashville, that they saw a scenario where we were going to win the Electoral College but lose the popular vote. And someone asked me, do a special version of a concession, of a, of a victory speech where we've, where we've won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote, don't, but don't tell anyone you've done it. So I did that. I guess a few people knew I had that. Then Gore actually said to me at one point, because it was looking like we were going to lose Tennessee, his home state, he wanted a special version of a Mm. victory speech where we'd won the election, but lost Tennessee, where he sort of was reaching out to Tennessee. So I had all of that. And the funny thing is, still none of them were used on election night. Where are these speeches now? I have them all at home on a computer somewhere. Have you ever Um, dug into them? No, I haven't, actually. And somebody was asking me about them recently. I should do something with them. Do you mind if I just jog your brain for a second? Not at all. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. Almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, Partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. I'm with you, Mr. President, and God bless you. Well, in that same spirit, I say to President-elect Bush that what remains of partisan rancor must now be put aside, and may God bless his stewardship of this country. That's the first minute of the speech. Wow. How does that make you feel? You know, it brings me back. It definitely brings me back. I don't know that I've heard it since then. Um... You know, it's uh, – I have so many complicated emotions about that that whole period. Um, you know, I rem- I was there the evening on the actual election night when, you know, Gore called – I wasn't there when he called Bush the first time, but I was there when he called him the second time and retracted 
um, his concession. And, you know, it was just a, this weirdly surreal, you know, you just, it was something what that did wasn't he say? supposed to happen. What did well, he say? you know, uh, so I wasn't there for the first call, although I was in the hallway and saw somebody hand him, you know, the phone number sort of through the door. But we sort of gathered at the war memorial thinking he was going to concede. I had this concession speech. It was actually loaded on a teleprompter and ready to go. Oh, my God. And um, then this news came that with something like 99% of the vote counted in Florida, we were 600 votes behind. And, you know, it took us a little while to figure this out, but that it was an automatic, I guess, um, electronic recount before the hand count, which came yeah. later. But there was at least going to be this, this you know, recount the next day. So Gore made this call. I don't quite remember. This is all in books and things now. But I, he said something, you know, like the situation seems to have changed. And um, I could, you know, obviously I couldn't hear the other yeah, end of the yeah, conversation. Yeah. There were maybe of 15 course. of us around this little old sort of metal gray desk like you would have in an elementary school for the teacher or something because we were in this, I guess it was a government building. And... Uh, I remember at one point he said to Bush, well, your little brother doesn't get to make that decision. So I assumed that, you know, Bush had said something like, well, my little brother says Florida's fine or something like that. Even in that moment. Yeah. He and, can't. Yeah. Jesus. And then, and then, and I'm pretty sure that was the order that that, that sentence came. And then there was another pause and, and Gore said, um, well, you don't have to be snippy about it. Oh, this is fantastic. Um, <laughs> This but is. this was written about at the time. But but um, so, you know, we're just, we're thrilled and excited because basically, you know, you got to imagine there's a whole team of people who have been told, so yes. the patient's died. You, the, we've lost the patient. The patient is dead. Right. You know, and then we're being told, actually, we're getting a heartbeat. Holy you shit. You know, and so it was just, it was a crazy moment. How quickly after the concession speech was given, did you say, I'm assuming it breaks down, the campaign sort of breaks down immediately. When did you say like your? When did you shake his hand? And when did you? You know, when did you say goodbye? Not that you. Oh, after the final concession. You mean yeah, the concession when it was speech. all over. The, you the, know, the final final. Concession. It was a weird thing. The final final concession happened in the old executive office building. Then, and I don't have much memory of that evening, but I know I went back with. You know, maybe yeah, we went to the old executive office building, but then we ended up back at the vice president's. House, which is an official residence. Yeah. We call it the Naval Observatory. It's a mansion basically in Northwest Washington where every vice president lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, and um, so we were back there. We call it NAVOBS. And there was a party. And um, How many people are at this party? Oh, boy. It became like a couple hundred people. Jesus. And it started... Um, Is catered or just like people bringing beer? No, I think it was, I think there was some stuff brought in and it was mostly drinks and hors d'oeuvres. I think we didn't get there till late. I mean, I think the concession was given in the Is evening. Is there music playing or is there like well, a somber sort of... There was some music playing and um, I even remember dancing. Holy Because it was, it, it, and I actually have a vague sort of hazy memory of dancing with one of the Gore daughters. Um, I knew them really well. Sure. They're all great people, actually. And uh, and then I left probably at like 10 or 11 and felt, okay, you know, it was still going on. And I think I remember hearing and reading in like the paper that, you know, a couple of days later that it had gone on till like two in the morning and like Tom Petty had shown up or something crazy like that. <laughs> but uh, it was just release. It was just... So yeah, I didn't say goodbye to Gore uh, for a while because... Um, even though I didn't work for anybody at that point. I, I had worked for the campaign, then I'd worked for the DNC during the recount. They just stuck me on a payroll. Um, I was still kind of his speechwriter. So even though in that period, I don't think anybody was paying me, I wrote some other speeches for him that he gave as vice president. I wrote a couple sort of farewell type speeches that he gave yeah. to like a, the Congressional Black Caucus, to some event where both the Clintons right. had been. Right. In fact, I remember writing that from New York and so I was just sort of disconnected in a way, but they would call me and say, he needs a speech for this. And I was mm -hmm. just still yeah. doing it. And then I went and sat with him. I, he, he asked me to come and sit down with him at the Naval Observatory, like before he left um, the vice presidency, because he actually wanted me to, to come work with him in some capacity post that. He hadn't yeah. figured it all out yet, and, which, and yeah. I sort of told him I was going to do something else. And, we, and we've kept in touch from, you know, till now. I mean, I, sure. well, a lot in the beginning. So there wasn't like a big moment of goodbye. We're going to take a very brief break, and we'll come back with more with Eli Addy. Today's episode is also sponsored by Bombas. They are athletic leisure socks. 
and they're re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. Socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters. So Bombas founded a, a way to solve that problem. You buy a pair, and then they donate a pair. And they've donated more than 150,000 pairs of socks to those in need since launching in, in 2013. So if you like socks and you also want to help people in need, this is the best place to possible go. And they're also very comfortable socks. I, they sent me some. I put them on my feet. I put my feet in some shoes. I walked. I ran in them. And they're socks. They're really comfortable socks, different colors, different styles, whatever you're into. Um, they have that, that Y-stitched heel which I enjoy because sometimes my heels get a little scrapey depending on the type of sneaker I'm using. Anyway, that's not important. Uh, they're very comfortable socks and they have that blister tab too, which is the ankle cushion that sits directly where your shoe hits your leg for that, you know, that rubbing and chafing. I always get that for some reason. I don't know. Um, anyway, they're great socks. They're really comfortable and they go towards a good cause. So they're purpose-built for athletes and they're engineered for extreme comfort. So go to bombas.com backslash Nate. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash Nate and use promo code Nate and you'll get a free pair. Huh? We're back with more with Eli Addy. Um, I asked Eli about, do you remember when Gore like sort of disappeared after he lost and then he came back and he had um, that huge big furry beard and he put on all this weight and people kind of lost their minds. It was such a huge story. I, I, I just remember like the front page of the New York Post like freaking out about it. And, and so I asked him about that and I, was, I wondered if it was as big to him as it was to the rest of the world. And, and this is what he said. I mean, it's funny because this is totally just my own view and I'm not you know, speaking for him or anything, but like, if I had a presidential election stolen from me by a dummy, um, you know, in a sort of a state that politically was likened by Ron Klain, who was, of course, chief of staff for a long time and brilliant lawyer, good friend of mine still, you know, he went down to Florida and was sort of overseeing our legal effort there. And he, you know, he called Gore and said, this is Guatemala. You know, like that was the state of sort of electoral you know, just election law and like the system down there. If that, if I'd gone through that, I mean, I would have become right. morbidly yeah. depressed, morbidly obese. A beer I would 10 still have a, I'd, I'd have a pint of Briar's ice cream and a bottle of Jack Daniels with me here now. Or heroin, you know? Or he heroin. Just OD'd. Yes, I would have heroin and ice cream. Is that the biggest sort of heartbreak in modern politics? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. Because this is the thing. So much has been, you know, and there are some people who will grouse at, you know, we're both, you know, Democrats and people saying, you know, outright sure. that the election was stolen or whatever. Sure. And there was a New York Times, or maybe it was a few different news organizations that kind of banded together a few years after the recount, two, three years after, and did a study that showed you know, if the Supreme Court hadn't stopped the count, you know, it's uh, Gore still wouldn't have made up the votes. I think there was some study that concluded that mm -hmm. um, or speculated that. Uh, and that may or may not be true because, you know, what the Supreme Court was ruling on was specific votes that were at issue. You know, it was so measured and limited in this county and that particular vote. But what I think never was in any dispute ever is that more people went into voting booths in Florida intending to vote for Al Gore than okay. intending to vote for George Bush. Right. And more people left voting booths in Florida thinking they had voted for Al Gore and not George Bush. So we were stupid in how we went about it and what vote we contested and mm. you know, got attacked maybe legitimately at times for picking places where we thought we had more votes or whatever. But we left a lot of stuff on the table. And so it's just, he, it's, I look at it as, you know, he won. He won the thing you know, in, in that way. Um, and I had to go through years when I first came to Hollywood of people saying to me, um, you know, why didn't Gore do this? And why didn't he use Clinton more? And why shouldn't he? And, 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 you know, my reaction was always, well, actually, he won the popular vote by five times what John Kennedy right. beat Nixon by. Yeah. So how <clears throat> much more should he have won the country by, actually, right. you know, to, for me to not get an earful? Now, he wasn't the president, so my argument, you know, fell apart at a certain level. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I still tried. I want to talk a little bit about uh, books. Um, sure. Did you, uh, were you a reader? 
Like as yeah, a kid? You know, it's funny. I've always been I a wasn't. reader. I've always been a reader, but I think that, um, and I, I, I have read books and I, I do read, read books. Uh, I've never been a huge reader of, of fiction. I sometimes read fiction. Hmm. Um, and your, like, who did your folks read? Did you have people? Yeah, like, absolutely. My parents, actually both artists. My mother's still, still around. My father's long gone. But uh, both, you know, voracious readers and all kinds of stuff. Probably more novels than nonfiction. And what I, so you grew up in a house where your people were always reading. Yeah, that's right. And actually, um, uh, my father, who was a photographer, um, uh, didn't go to college, um, but was kind of an artist and moved in a cultured crowd and, you know, was one of those people who read the New York Times every day and yeah. went to see foreign movies. And yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he felt he, you know, he had to. And also of a generation, as my mother is, where, you know, novels were more important than they are now. I think it was, Absolutely. Like, right. it was like saying, have you seen the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Right. You had to read the new Norman Mailer novel right. or the new John Cheever novel. It's funny right. to look back at that because it's so gone. What, mo you know? what moved you more towards, um, what moved you away from, from fiction? Just your interest? You know, I think I, I don't know that I was ever there. As a kid, I was obsessed with like Mad Magazine. Yeah. And also a little bit Rolling Stone and Rock Magazines because I was mm -hmm. always a big, you know, music guy. Yeah. And I, I definitely was a reader um, and would read things, but I, I, I would more kind of devour periodicals than fiction. I think mm. I've always been really interested in it's funny because I'm a, now I'm a screenwriter and a television Story writer. I make things up for a living. Yeah. But like I always was more interested in the documentary and the real yeah. and people's own words, mm -hmm. you know, which actually was very formative for me when I got into screenwriting. I realized I loved reading interviews. I loved reading the way people spoke. But mm -hmm. I did read books and I read, you know, high school and college, they make sure, sure you read a gazillion novels and I read all the classics. And That's funny. I, I, I share a similar thing where I don't... Um, when I'm reading fiction, I don't like supernatural. I don't like fantasy. I want it to be rooted in truth. I want to believe that this story can happen. And the same with my taste in movies. Mm. I do not like enormous action-packed movies. Yeah. I don't like, uh, I like very little science fiction. I'm like you. Fantasy. I want to see yeah, right. reality reproduced. Do you think that's a mistake? Because I sometimes, I'm, I'm not a genre person. And I, yeah. I, I, I will often just not see a science fiction film just because it's a science fiction film. Same here. And I feel sometimes like maybe I'm making a mistake. Like we I are. don't watch Game of Thrones. and Same here. I feel, somebody said, was saying something to me about how these are like the kind of myths and fables of like now. Yeah. And I was thinking like, well, I'm, I may be missing that. I, I think you should have a sample of everything. It's sort of the liberal arts perspective. I, I, should, I should have my toe in everything. But when I have that where do, time... Where do we go wrong, you and me? I don't... How do we screw a, this up so It's a badly? great question. And when I, was, when I first started like, getting into books, I lived in New York, I always went to nonfiction. I felt like I was yeah, me too. cheating if I went to fiction. I was like, oh, this is, I'm not taking advantage of my time. I need to learn something. You learn just as much reading fiction, totally. just Absolutely. in a different way. Absolutely. But I always went, I was like, no, I have to, I got to be smart. I got I to gotta expand my, uh, my brain power and learn about things that I don't know. As opposed to reading um, like contemporary novels about like living in New England, <laughs> like which was basically all That's I hilarious. knew up to that. Um, but it's funny that you were drawn towards like periodicals and nonfiction. Yeah, I mean, that was even your... now, I think some of it is um, like not an attention span problem, but uh -huh. but um, I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, because I don't know if you read this or care, but I'm a huge uh, Beatles fan, and I have a lot sure. of a lot of close friends who are. Uh, including some people you and I know in common. And, and uh, this this book came out um, called Tune In, the Beatles Tune In last year that was this the first of a three-volume set planned by this guy who's only finished one volume who's considered like a leading Beatles you know, scholar yeah, yeah. in a yeah. field of a million of them now. And uh, the book ends at 1962, and it's like a 1,000 pages long. But there's a deluxe edition you can order from England that's like 2,000 pages long. Yeah. And... and you know, I, which I kind of wish I had read. I wish I'd read the longer version. But normally, I, I when I start reading a book, I will pretty quickly look to the back and see how many pages it is. Same here. And even if it's something I'm enjoying, if it's like 875, I kind of, my heart sinks for a second. Yeah. And I think, because I, I was talking to journalist friends of mine. That's what this, um, where this started. Just the other day, 
And one of them was saying that when he sees a piece in a magazine or newspaper that's like less than 1,500 words, he thinks it's probably not going to say anything worth anything. Whoa. Whereas I see a short piece and I think, oh, I'm relieved. I only have to read this much? Absolutely. It always feels like a burden to me. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) At first. And then you get into it and it's And you know that little bite is going to be full of flavor because they only have a little amount of time and they're going to pack it in. You you hope. Yeah, Yeah. totally. That's why I love short stories. And authors who are really good at short stories are able to just Well, that's true. Just... Fill it. So just like every moment is rich and filled. That's true. And limericks, you know, riddles. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. (laughs) I want haikus. My original pitch was just a show about limericks, but they passed on it. Do you use. It'll be very short. uh, (laughs) Let's talk about um, some political books that you enjoy or don't enjoy. I was thinking about this a little bit in terms of like, what are some books that I think of as my, some of my favorite. Yeah, um, books about politics. Yeah. And I'll tell you one of them, which is a lot of people's favorite book about politics f- who work in politics, is a book called What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer, which is um, kind of a masterpiece. It's actually a book, it has a lot about Gary Hart in it. It's a book about the 1988 presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons, it actually bombed when it came out and over years has come to be recognized as a great classic. He died very recently, Richard Ben Kramer. But, uh, but, uh, it, he he spent an enormous amount of time with six of the people who ran for president in wow. '88. It's like Bob Dole, Gary Hart, Joe Biden, Dick Gephardt, yeah. uh, Mike Dukakis, and uh, Bush. Wow! And got tons of access to them and their families. And he's a very literary writer, and he puts mm. you in moments, private moments, scenes, and meetings in in the way that Bob Woodward does, but as if Woodward had any talent as a writer at all, which he doesn't. And it's it's an incredible book. <laughs> and anyone who's ever worked for any of those people, like I worked for Dick Gephardt, and this nails him in a way nothing written wow. about him ever has come close. Wow. And everyone of, who's spent time with those six politicians who were profiled in this book says that. But it also captures the essence of what it's like to work in politics. It's really funny. There's a lot of irony and yeah. weirdness and absurdity in yeah. it. And it just captures it like nothing else. And and um, it's ultimately a book about how the role of handlers is so exaggerated. I mean, it doesn't have a, it doesn't come to a point like that. But you read it and you realize these are six extraordinary people, whatever you think of them. And always in the book, the consultants and posters and handlers and speechwriters yeah. are buzzing around trying to take credit and trying to manage yeah, yeah. everything. When it all really comes down to the guy and his head, and. Wow. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's fantastic. I, I recommend it to to everybody. What it takes. What it takes. Yeah, that's a great one. Great. I'm writing um, that down. There's a book. Um, I scribbled crib notes. You know, it was interesting. Well, I could talk about fiction, but I also yeah, have please. some other nonfiction. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a book that uh, that I really love, which is um, kind of obscure, by uh, John Podhoritz, who's uh, somebody I know, but but I I guess I read this after I met him. Um, he had been a speechwriter for Reagan and maybe for Daddy Bush for a little while. And he's now a reporter in New York, writes for the New York Post. But he wrote a book about the Daddy Bush presidency called Hell of a Ride that's mm-hmm. kind of unlike other books written about politics because it's sort of um, – it, it every chapter is from the perspective of a different kind of person. Like one is from the perspective of a junior staffer. Another oh, wow. is from the perspective of a senior staffer. And it's also very funny and very wry and not meaning to be historical. And I think captures the experience of being a young person working in the White House better than most things I've read. Wow. Because it's not trying to make any – it's just tr- – it, it's yeah. the feel of the place. It's what it's like when you're a junior staffer and the president decides to come down that hallway and everybody yeah. comes out of their office or, you know, things like that. And That's it's great. very weird and funny and um, How ironic. long ago did that come out? Oh, boy, that probably came out in the 90s. Okay. Um, and I think that that book and What It Takes were both books that came out long enough after what they were writing about that people weren't interested anymore. Yeah. So both of them faded away. But that's one of the ironies about the sort of instant histories that come out all the time now. You leave the cabinet, you write a book three months later because right. if you wait, then that exactly. president won't be in office and no one will want to read it. Yeah. But these, it's the Woodward you know, formula, which is kind of bang it out, get it out on the street, and they're, they're terrible and they have no perspective. Reading Aloud is brought to you by harrys.com. Do you have someone on your gift list this holiday season that is impossible to shop for? That guy in your life who has everything, but sometimes his five o'clock shadow gets a little bit heavy? Well, 
Let's solve that problem. Harry's offers the Winter Winston set. 30 bucks for a sleek chrome razor, three blades, their amazing uh, foaming shave gel, the shaving cream, and it's already wrapped, and it ships for free. I had a kit. It's, they sent um, one to me. I popped on the, uh, the blade on the, on, the, on the razor, shaved my face. Delightful. Delicious. Perfect. It's just in time for the holidays. So Harry's is going to give you a gift. All listeners of the show get five bucks off their first purchase with promo code ALLOWED. So go to harrys.com and Harry will give you five bucks off if you type in my coupon code ALLOWED. harrys.com, coupon code ALLOWED, and check out for five bucks off and start shaving better today. To finish out this week's Reading Aloud, um, to piggyback on Eli's interview, uh, I wanted to... Um, play two um, two pieces of political theater that I love. The first is Mr. Rogers going in front of the U.S. Senate to defend PBS, and which a lot of people have heard or seen. It's on YouTube. It's great, and I want to play it now. And the other one is this really great speech that Bobby Kennedy made in 1968 after um, Martin Luther King was was shot and killed. And it's one of the great speeches of the, of the 20th century. Anyway, first, this is Miss, Mr. Rogers. Um, the, uh, PBS needed $20 million. And this, this was, I think, in 1969. And Richard Nixon wanted to cut it to 10. So PBS said, how are we going to get this extra 10? We need this 20. And what do we do? So they had this hearing in front of a bunch of senators. And they brought out the big guns. They brought out Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers sat down at a table across from the committee chairman and defended PBS for five minutes. And it's real compelling. And this is Mr. Rogers. All right, Rogers, you got the floor. (laughs) Senator Pastore. This is a philosophical statement and would take about 10 minutes to read, so I'll not do that. Uh, One of the first things that a child learns in a healthy family is trust, and I trust what you have said that you will read this. It's very important to me. I care deeply about children. My first children... Will it make you happy if you read it? I'd just like to talk about it, if it's all right. All right. Okay. My first children's program was on WQED 15 years ago, and its budget was $30. Now, with the help of the Sears Roebuck Foundation and National Educational Television, as well as all of the affiliated stations, each station pays to show our program. It's a unique kind of funding in educational television. With this help, now our program has a budget of $6,000. It may sound like quite a difference, but $6,000 pays for less than two minutes of cartoons. Two minutes of animated, what I sometimes say, bombardment. I'm very much concerned, as I know you are, about what's being delivered to our children in this country. And I've worked in the field of child development for six years now, trying to understand the inner needs of children. We deal with such things as as the inner drama of childhood. We don't have to bop somebody over the head to make him to to make drama on the screen. We deal with such things as getting a haircut or the feelings about brothers and sisters and the kind of anger that arises in simple family situations. And we speak to it constructively. How long a program is it? It's a half hour every day. Most channels schedule it in in the noontime as well as in the evening. Uh, WETA here has scheduled it in the late afternoon. Could we get a copy of this so that we can see it? 
Maybe not today, but I'd like to see the program. I'd like very much for you I'd to like see. I'd like to see the program itself, or any one of them, you see. We, we made a hundred programs for EEN, the Eastern Educational Network, and then when the money ran out, people in Boston and Pittsburgh and Chicago all came to the fore and said, we've got to have more of this neighborhood expression of care. And this is what, this is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger. Much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. And for 15 years I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you uh, narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. Well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong, and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to can stop when I wish, can stop, 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 any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this, and know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady, and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> That's Mr. Rogers in front of the Senate in 1969. I, someone passed that along to me a couple years ago, and it just, it blew my mind. Um, and this last piece is this really wonderful speech that Bobby Kennedy gave the night MLK was assassinated. He was running for president. This is in 1968. And he was going to Indianapolis. And he flew to Indianapolis. He got off the plane. And his advisors told him what had happened, that Martin Luther King had been shot and killed. And he was heading to a rally in uh, a black ghetto in downtown Indianapolis. And the police said, don't go, because we can't protect you. And there are going to be riots. They're going to tear the neighborhood apart, and you're going to get in trouble. Don't go. So he told him to fuck off, and he said, I'm going. He got into his limo. He drove to the, to the, um, to the setting of this rally. And his advisors, you know, scratched two or three lines on a piece of paper. But this is basically Bobby Kennedy going off the cuff in the moment. And you can be cynical about it, and a lot of people are cynical about the Kennedys, certainly because of their history. 
But I tend to look at this speech in a, in a different way, and especially in the light of certain circumstances recently. Um, and Ferguson, this speech, just for some reason, I, I went back and watched it again, and, and, it's, and it's special. And it's politics, but he is real smart and really honest in, th- in these three or four minutes. It's very, very brief, but... Um, you can hear him just as he walks up on the stage, he asks one of the guys on the stage, then introduced him, whether the audience knows or not if King had been shot, and they don't. So he has to tell them the night that MLK has been murdered, and um, it's, it's quite something. So um, here's the speech. Did they know about Martin Luther King? Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that There were white people who were responsible. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people. I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people 
and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. That was uh, Bobby Kennedy in April of 1968 after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And again, feel free to, to feel uh, cynical about politics and about the state of our country and about the Kennedys, but I, that, uh, that four and a half minutes is, uh, seems very real and very, and very honest. Um, and that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening to um, another episode of Reading Aloud. A reminder, the book club is coming up very soon, so get Adele Waldman's The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P., Adele Waldman. Read it and then listen to our book club. Be a part of the show. Also, send in your thoughts. If you have a point of view about the book, let us know. Um, it's at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Also, there's another live show. We're doing another live show at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here in Hollywood uh, on Friday, December 12th at 10.30 p.m. So come down and see us uh, read live comedy pieces in front of you. Be a part of the show that way. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Uh, I'm Nate Cordry, and I'll, uh, I'll see you soon. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane! Listeners, I need your help. Uh, help Reading Aloud stay free to download by completing a very short anonymous survey. It'll take no more than five minutes. Your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our listeners like you. So if you complete the survey, you'll be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win 100 bucks. A $100 uh, Amazon gift card, which is great. So, and we promise not to share your email or anything. Um, you just go to podsurvey.com slash Nate podsurvey.com slash Nate. Take the survey, which is really helpful to us, and you get a chance to win a $100 gift card. Thanks. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.